Welcome to this week's Quitters. Who is our guest this week, Chad? Who are you? Oh, I'm Julie Bowen. Oh, uh. <laughs> I'm still Julie Bowen every week. And you are? I'm Chad Sanders. Thank you, Chad. I sometimes do get things really out of order. <laughs> so our guest this week is? Monica Padman. The reason we know each other. Yes, the reason we know each other. Monica Padman and producer Rachel are best friends. They were roommates. Is that right? That's correct. They were roommates. They were roommates. I went on Monica and Dax's show, Armchair Expert, to talk about my book. Rachel reached out to Monica. Monica made a connection. She's just been our fairy pod mother a little bit. Fairy. <laughs> oh, my God. Did you just make that up right now? No, I stole it. I adapted it. Oh, shit. That was good. Pod father. Thanks. Pod mother is good. She's the one who taught us how to bootstrap it as podcasters. We don't have a corporation that's backing us. I mean, we have ads, but we don't have a, what do you call it? We don't have a parent company. We're it. And that was based on the model that Monica and Dax built themselves. And they were kind enough to share with us their journeys. And Monica was kind enough to share with us very intimately all about the things that she wishes that she could quit, has quit, and the trial of assimilation, which was really interesting. Yeah, Monica, she's so smart and she's also so graceful, but she's also really honest and forthright about the stuff that she's feeling. With regards to the assimilation stuff, she said the thing that she's quit is assimilating. The thing she's really good at is assimilating. assimilating. (laughs) I don't want to spoil the whole conversation, but there's a lot of conversation about assimilating. If anybody's listening and doesn't know Monica Padman is, they just did a beautiful little piece on her in Vanity Fair that I posted about on my Instagram. I just was so proud. As a friend of a friend, I consider her success to be a beacon for anybody that's out there doing it on their own. And I wish her and Dax all the best with their podcast. So here she is, Monica Padman. Monica Padman, a star in her own right. Chad's going to introduce you because... Because we're buddies. By the way, we've had a bunch of guests, but you're the first one who's crossed over. We both know you. That's fun. This is going to be really, really exciting. I'm scared and I'm excited. I want to steal you and Dax's trick, which is that you kind of just... Get into it. Yeah, you kind of just think, hi, and then you're just, oh man, you're so cute. And then the person smiles... (laughs) And then you got him. (laughs) (laughs) We met you through Rachel. Rachel Field, who is our producer here. Shout out. And without whom there would be no Chad. I mean, there would be Chad, but I wouldn't know him (laughs) because I wouldn't know you. And Monica, you introduced me to Chad. So you're the nexus. There would be no anything without Rachel. In my life, that's very true. Nothing would happen. Can I do a weird, embarrassing intro for you, Monica? Sure. It's going to be embarrassing because it's going to be flattering. We talk about you basically every single day in some regard. It's usually we're so grateful that Monica allowed us to all know each other, more or less. (laughs) (laughs) And that she continues to be benevolent to us and give so generously of relationships, information, positive energy. Look at you. You're like, this is probably squeamish for you. But (laughs) yeah, I don't love it. I really mean it because I have had the other experience where 
Hollywood folk, not to call you one, but you kind of are one. How dare you? Please don't. She is. <laughs> Where Hollywood folk, everything that they have and everyone that they know, they clench their fists really tightly around those things. And you have been the opposite of that. And so thank you for being that way. You're welcome. I appreciate it. And I have to pass the compliment along because I think that's a learned thing. Kristen is like that times a gajillion. All she does is give, give, give and connect, 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 try to make everyone around her succeed and better. And I kind of just got to watch it. At first, I too was like, what are you doing? Why are you giving away that secret sauce? But then it doesn't matter. It all comes back around. It all helps everyone. So I got to see it firsthand, which is why I feel comfortable doing it. My observation of you is that you're generous and also you are really confident about what you do and what you have. That probably also makes it all a lot less threatening to be generous. I think those things are complimentary. There's so many places where all three of us intersect. And one of them is the idea of generosity being a privilege. So we're all different places with being in the public eye. I'm definitely old. <laughs> I'm the more of the elder statesman in this group. Monica is popped off and Chad's entering this. And how do you stay authentic in that process? Are you allowed to stay authentic when you now have sort of a brand, when you have got people who are actually paying you to be you? But most of all, that all of it is a privilege to have this platform. It's a privilege to be able to speak your mind. I'm putting that in air quotes because that's a really effective thing to do. I'm new at this. You know what? You're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> it is a privilege to be generous as well with your resources as you become more privileged and more public in this world. How has your relationship to authenticity changed? That's a great question. I think I've gotten more authentic over time because our show relies so heavily on it. Uh -huh. There is no getting around how you feel. And that's partly because... Dax and I's relationship is so specific and he's so, you know, AA forward and vulnerability forward that you kind of can't be close with him and not be true to yourself. Mm -hmm. Chad knows. And I love it. Like at first it was so scary. When we first started the show, I was like, I don't know. I don't know about saying stuff about my love life or lack of or, you know, those types of things. <laughs> And he was like, you don't have to, but that's what people connect with. It's those little idiosyncrasies that people connect with. And I have for sure learned that over time. Now we say the more specific it is, the more universal it is. And I really think it's true. And because of that specific platform, I feel like I've cheated. I don't have to be something for a brand. I am me. I am really selling me. Mm -hmm. I feel kind of lucky that I haven't had to sacrifice in that way. The generosity thing, for certain, we talk about that a lot on the show. It is a privilege to be generous, even financially. When you talk about philanthropy and things like that, you get a lot of claps on the back, but it's a privilege to be able to do it. You have to have the means first. You can't ask everyone to be able to do it. They can't. To me, it's more of, yeah, you should do that, not, yeah, you did, yay. Mm. And so we have these bells and we do ring them on each other in those moments. I think we both wanted to know in the years that you've been building this podcasting empire at Armchair, 
how frequently and in what ways would you have wanted to ring the bell had you had one? And I was embarrassed to say and fully ringing the bell on myself this morning, talking to Chad, folding laundry, going, I never thought of Monica as a person of color. Never, never. And that's on me. I have so many things to say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One is, it is not your fault that you don't think of me like that. It's my fault because since I've known you, which is a long time, I probably never, not once said anything about being Indian or family stuff or cultural stuff or anything. Like that's something I'm currently trying to quit is mm -hmm. I've spent my whole life hoping that you would never notice that. <laughs> so I succeeded. So great. Good for me. But now I'm like, Oh, wow. I just pushed all this stuff aside. That's part of my identity. That's real. But I don't even really know about it. And now it's confusing because I don't know what parts are who I would be if I had brought it in or what I would lose if I had brought it in it becomes this whole narrative. But yes, it is not because of you. It's because of me, because I've always been like, I want to be as white as possible. I want to assimilate. I want everyone to like me. I don't want to be different. You'd said in an earlier podcast, I want to stop assimilating. When did you ever feel like you were assimilating? Because again, I'll get the bell at the ready because I'm going to step in it. Step all you want. That's what we do. You got to talk it out. It seems to me that Asians and people from India, which is referred to as South Asia. Yeah, South Asian. Sure. There seems to be a stereotype, be it a positive one or a negative one, of a model minority. Mm -hmm. And that somehow, oh, Indians become doctors and Asians are really good at math. And that kind of BS that makes you cringe when I hear that. But I recognize that it's also gotten into my brain because that's probably why I didn't ever think of you as a person of color, because I never thought of you as, quote unquote, at a disadvantage. Yeah. You never thought of what's the word? I'm totally blanking. Chad, help. <laughs> Chad. I don't know what the word is, but I really hate the term model minority. It is so paternalistic. It's terrible. I agree. And condescending and petting on the head. I don't think I've heard that word in, I mean, it's not really around me. I'm not one, but I haven't heard that word in a long, long time. I was just introduced to it. This was brand new for me. And I was like, oh, wow, that's rough. Well, I used to hear it at Google where more of the community was of Asian and South Asian backgrounds. Uh-huh. Yeah, because what it means is you're as close to white as possible. The model minority is you are as close to the general patriarchy as possible. So going back to ringing the bell, I ring the bell on Dax every day. I mean, we don't have a bell. But from day one, that's why he wanted me there. I mean, he had that wherewithal. He had that foresight. Because when we first started, we were first talking about the show. I wasn't going to be on it. I'll help produce this. And he was like, I think you should be on it. I think it would be great to have a voice that's different than mine. He knew that. And in our just backyard chats or whatever, all I do is kind of call out and poke. And that's sort of the dynamic we've always had and brought to the show. I'm curious, Monica, because... When Julie said she never thought of you as a person of color, your reaction was to take the blame for that. When your guests come in and they might say something that doesn't feel very good, it feels like you'll own it, you'll hold it for them so that it doesn't make everything uncomfortable. 
I've observed that about you a little bit too, is that you will take on some weight to keep the flow of things moving along. And where does that come from? Is that a gendered habit? Is that just Monica? Is that a minority thing? What do you think is the deal with that? I'm sure it's a mix of all three. I'm sure gender plays a role of just being societally taught to defer. Definitely being a minority in Georgia, that is a huge thing. If somebody said something, not even racist, but racial, I would want to either move past it as fast as possible or join so that they know I'm on their team. Mm -hmm. So layered. It was so, all I wanted was to be a part of the group. Right. Of course, you were probably a kid who just wanted to fit in. Exactly. Were you the only kid of color in your class at school? Or No, there were plenty. But I will say, I was, within the friend group I was in, I was the only person of color. And in the AP classes, there were people of color and there were minorities. But those weren't my friends. And I was a cheerleader. I was trying to be popular. I was trying to do the thing. I wasn't the only person of color. This is kind of a weird flip. We had a couple black kids on the cheerleading squad who were the best. And I still felt totally separate from them. I'm this other kind of random thing that people don't know. And so because of that, because I felt like I either had to explain it which I didn't want to do or even really know the answers. I was just like, that's not me. That's not me. Right. And so that would be when you were assimilating, as you say. Yeah. And if you could now, with the lens of time and with you saying, I want to quit assimilating, is there a way you would have approached that differently if you could have a conversation with your younger self? How else could you have done it? I think it's hard to tell a kid to own your otherness, <laughs> mm. especially at that time. Maybe kids now, because I think we're teaching kids a different philosophy of life. Mm -hmm. But I wish I could say that because what makes you you is what will make you succeed. That's all true, but it's hard to tell a kid that. Yeah, when you just want to get invited to the sleepover. Exactly. You're not going to be like, I want to represent my mother's culture that I am vaguely in touch with. Exactly. You're like, I just want to go to the sleepover. Exactly. And yeah, you want to sit by someone at lunch and you don't want them to be like, what is that in your lunchbox? That was just not an option for me. <laughs> but I'm sad about it. I guess what I wish is I had stopped that earlier, maybe. Like, I can give myself some leeway for being a kid. Right. But that just continued and continued and continued. And now I'm 34 and I'm like, huh, I don't know anything about my family. That's weird and strange. But does that also come from the privilege that you have gained of having more of a voice, having more of a seat at the table? I can say I'm a feminist, but I never used to say that. I never used to say it because I didn't want to piss people off. And now I'm like, no, I'm a feminist because guess what? I don't need somebody to pay my rent. So I acknowledge that. And I wish that I had stood up more for myself as a woman when I was younger, much more. But at the same time, I realized I only have that point of view from a place of privilege now. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to separate because I am where I am. So it's really hard to know. Is it the privilege? Is it age? Is it the people I'm around who really, really, really accept me and not just accept me, but are interested, are truly interested in my family and past and all of those things? 
that I felt I had to avoid my whole life. I didn't have to. But yeah, it's a mix. I mean, I'm sure if I still felt I want to be seen or I want a place at this table, then maybe I'd still feel like I got to do that. Yeah. What about your station now as leader of a giant thing and partner in a giant thing? Do you feel you get to set the tone for environments now? When you walk into a room full of your oldest friends, do you hold a different weight in that sort of room now? No. (laughs) Absolutely not. I actually just had this thought because I was home for a few days and I was at dinner with a couple of my oldest girlfriends who I love and I'm very close to still. And I was like, you're the same. You are the same forever. It doesn't matter what I'm doing now, what I'm doing here. The dynamic is unchanged, I have found. Even when I expect something different, it's not. How does that jibe with your desire to quit assimilating then? I guess it's hard because at this point, they are permanents. I wonder, would I feel really open talking to those people about Indian food? (laughs) I don't know that I would because there's all this old vestigial feeling around it. Whereas like with Rachel, yes, I would totally and not even think twice about it. But maybe I should just force myself to. I don't know. When you say you want to stop assimilating, I'm just curious This is what I think about when I am quitting anything, which is what is on the other side of this? It's an abyss. When I am about to turn my microphone on before we start one of these conversations, I'm always like, what voice is about to come out when I open my mouth here? Who are you outside of assimilation? What will there be if you've been doing this for 34 years? Now it's all one thing. I am me because of those practices. And I like a lot of things that have come out of it. I do think I know how to read people and I do know what people want from me in the moment. To be honest, that ship has sailed. Mm. That's done. That's part of Monica. But what I'm doing now is knowing what people need and what might make them uncomfortable and making the decision Is it worth making them uncomfortable? Mm. Because it might be worth making them uncomfortable, but also it might not. And that's something that's happening with Dax all the time. I call him out on everything. I mean, he gets the brunt of everything. And there have been some moments lately where I'm like, was it worth it? Sometimes it is. But it's just balancing that of when to push, when not to push, when to push your opinions, I guess, on things and your experience on things or keep it to yourself. Chad, I'm sure this is what you do all day long. (laughs) Well, it's funny because it's not, but I'm an introvert anyway, and I have redesigned a life that mostly is spent around people who I don't feel that way around. But as I'm sort of coming out of that and exposing myself to more people like Julie, like Rachel, I'm having to make those decisions again. When is it worth it to say the thing and exert myself and then spend the next 12 hours? Oh, was I too hard? Did I say it right? With Julie, sometimes it's like, I said this in a way that I don't think was well communicated last time, but we had a guest and Julie and the guest had a really strong and long relationship. There was a familiarity and a cadence that I felt like I just couldn't engage. I couldn't break in. I felt like a wallflower. And the interview, I think, went pretty well, though. And then I spent the next 12 hours sitting with that and stewing in it a little bit and thinking about it late at night. And then the next day, 
I brought it up to Julie. And almost immediately after the words had left my mouth, I started thinking, wait, is this really about that? Or is this really about you being a guy and being in your ego because you felt like a thing? You felt like you didn't have space and you want more space. I do spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff and it is very confusing. And sometimes it feels like there's no way out. I was thinking this while you were talking, Chad, and then you just nailed it. The way out is what Monica has said she can't do anymore, which is she has been assimilated. She's these friends from where you grew up, these white friends, and they are absolutely a parcel of who you are and how you see yourself. Chad took this step, a very dramatic step, away from all of that when he quit Google. And I used to have a raging eating disorder. I quit weighing myself completely. But it's that extreme, I will not do it. It hasn't really made me stronger to avoid a trigger. Really, the person I would like to be in the world is somebody that triggers are flying around all day long. And I'm like, I'm chill. I'm cool. I don't need to react. Yes. But yes. it's not where I am. And especially with something that I have found with that I have quit, I'm not anywhere near that. I can't be around it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to Google myself. I don't want to step on a scale. I don't need to have that part of my life triggered. But if I was really a mature individual, which is, I think, where Monica is probably ahead of both of us, Chad, mm. you seem like you're more comfortable straddling that line. Yeah, because I don't have a choice. It's If I'm going to take baby steps to feel better for me, what am I going to do? Be like, bye to every single person I've ever met in my whole life. I can't. But I will say, Julie, to, you know, cut yourself a little bit of slack because some people can't. They can't. And it's okay. I think knowing that is very evolved. And when we talk about quitting, I think that there often is a black and white line, a binary no. There's things that are obviously quitting smoking, but then there's stuff that is a little bit <sighs> quitting a dream. And if I may segue, acting, for instance. I guess I haven't quit acting, but I've definitely quit it being my priority. Right. I've definitely quit chasing it. That's for sure. Mm. But if I have auditions that come up that I'm interested in, I'll, of course, go on them. But it's definitely not. All my eggs are not in that basket anymore. Maybe because I haven't been like, no, I'm not. I'm not doing it. Then it's much easier for me to swallow a little bit. It's easier for me to be like, yeah, if that comes, that comes. Great. But I'm really fulfilled right now. I'm doing this. This is mine in a much different way than acting ever is. If acting had gone perfectly from day one, I probably never would have had this. But just like a way of kind of looking at all of it. And again, not to keep bringing her up, but since Kristen does absolutely everything, I kind of have modeled that. I can do that. I can produce this. I can do that. I can act in this commercial or do whatever. You know, I don't feel stuck so far, <laughs> which is good. But wait, Chad, I have to go back to something that you said earlier because... I'm you. I get it. I get that you're sitting there and Julie is talking to one of her oldest, dearest friends and you don't know where your place is. Mm -hmm. That's me all the time. And we had Bradley on, Bradley Cooper, and they have the longest, dearest relationship. And I'm like, Bradley Cooper, I love you. Yeah. And I'm sitting, <laughs> I'm sitting here like, oh my God, like, where's my in? But I will say, actually, with Bradley, I didn't have that because I've learned over time to not be so precious about it. At the beginning, I was so... Talk about something I've tried hard to quit. I was so 
in my head during those first chunk of episodes because I was like, well, when do I talk? When am I going to get my words out? And I need to sound important. And it's too hard to sound important if you only have like (laughs) one sentence in. I was so in my head. And at that time, I was like, oh, my God, it's Judd Apatow. Like, I need him to know I do this, too. You know, there was just so much going on. It was really hindering the whole experience for me. And I would say to Dax multiple times, like, I just don't feel I'm saying anything or I don't feel. And he was like, I get it. And together, like, we can work on this. But also, you need to know that we won the lottery and you can't miss it. Mm. You need to be present for this because this does not happen. I was like, he's right. And over time, I really was able to let so much of that go. And because I did, then I was able to speak up more and feel more confident. It's just been in such an interesting ride. So I can relate to you is what I'm saying big time. A lot of it is ego. I don't think it's male ego, by the way. Again, I have it. It's a wanting to be important. We all want that. Where is your ego? I have not been able to detect it on you in our interactions. I mean, you're a big dog now. You are the one who, I think it's fair to say, architected this thing that you have. And you do live shows that sell out. You're big. I'm not trying to gas (laughs) you up. You're really, really big. I really am watching you very closely and not picking up on much (laughs) ego. And I think my ego is so visible. I'm sure you all have had to do shows where you're in the middle of a fight. How do you manage that? Mm. It's just like in any relationship, you're bringing all the stuff to the table. Really, you have to go in saying to yourself, kind of as a mantra, for this hour, we are not doing it right before the Matt Damon episode, which is... The love of my life, for me, for certain, the biggest guest we could ever possibly have on. It's been a long time coming. Bigger than Obama? I know. I was going to say, you had the president. The president. (laughs) I mean, to me, the president. The president, for sure. But no, Matt Damon is my number one. I mean, he's changed my life in such a massive way. I watched Good Will Hunting on repeat every day on VHS. And then I would watch it in my brain in school. I would just like sit there and just watch it in my brain. I was so obsessed. (laughs) So obsessed. Anyway, so for us, you know, that's a huge deal. And for me particularly. And so we were in a fight. But then before we went in, Dax pulled me aside and he was like, please, let's put this over here for now. Do not let our thing ruin this. This is way too important. And we were able to. I think when both people get on that page, right. it can't just be like you in your head. You almost have to communicate it and be like, right. I know we're in kind of a funk, but we're going to get past it. And so for now, let's just set it aside. I think open communication helps with that. You know, during COVID, we were in a pod with some other families and literally we were all together all Mm. day long, every day. And it's beautiful. Like it gave us so much companionship and I would have been literally alone in my apartment without it. I'm so thankful. But, you know, it's family. It's family. That's really what it is. But you are here as Monica Padman. You're not here as the producer and other voice of Armchair Expert. You've been stepping out and doing more and more on your own. Has that changed that dynamic? We talk about everything on that show. Right. There's nothing unsaid. Right. I just credit the both of them a lot. They're not 
trying to hoard their talent. <laughs> you know, they're not trying to keep the people close and not let them branch out or not do the thing. They want that more than anything. So it's a very supportive environment for me to like go do tiny kitchen cook-off and whatever. Like they love that. That's so fun. And that's also fun for us. It gives us more to talk about. We're all doing our own stuff and bringing it to the center. In that Tim Ferriss interview, one thing that is said is be thoughtful about who you are in that first episode and try to be who you actually are because whoever you are then is who people are going to expect you to be in the 300th episode and thereafter. My thought when I heard that was, well, people change and people grow Mm. and Mm -hmm. there has to be some space to be a new person every time you turn the mic on. Have you found people trying to hold you to or box you into whoever they wanted you to be five episodes into the show versus who you are actually becoming, do you think it has changed your growth trajectory or boxed you into being any particular person? No, I think I agree with you that you have to be able to grow and change. Our show has changed a ton. Our show is not what our first episode was. I mean, that was a great episode. It was with Kristen, so it's intimate. But I don't say one word in that episode. We don't know what we're doing. It's a complete learning experience for the first bit. We didn't even edit the show at first. It's much different, and I think it has to be, and I think that's the only way to keep people coming back. If you're saying the same thing every time or if you have the same tone every time or if you're the same person why are they going to return? I think you have to have some evolution. If you're being authentic, you probably are just naturally going to have some evolution. I haven't felt that. I felt the opposite. We've morphed and it's been good for us. You also said something else in our research that struck a chord with me as a single lady. And you had done a podcast. Monica and Jess love boys. But then, and I don't know what the timing of this statement that you would quit dating You said you were done. You were quitting dating. And was that because of you're giving a very strange look like, I never said that. I know. I don't remember saying that. Well, I could ask you, was there something in that process of trying the experiment of dating publicly, which was bold? I applaud you. Thank you. I feel like this is, God, when did I say that? I mean, I kind of never started dating. (laughs) (laughs) So it's hard for me to say I quit dating. When I was younger, I had a couple instances that kind of taught me you're not going to do well here. So I guess you could say I quit dating then, but that was like eighth grade. And then that kind of continued and I just kind of created fantasy worlds for myself in order to substitute a real relationship. You mean Matt Damon? Correct. (laughs) But then look how that turned out. It all worked out. But yeah, so I just kind of stopped putting myself out there very early on. And then that kind of continued, continued, continued. And then Monica and Jess was actually an attempt to break that. Okay. To really force myself to do it and also to force Jess to slowed down a little bit. It was for that reason. And then COVID happened. So then we kind of had to stop it. Right. We got so vulnerable on accident and really had to push myself to do things I would never do. Like give someone random my phone number. I've never done that. And I don't want to do it. That's horrifying. But then I did. You know, it kind of just taught me that all of these things are about me, really, not about the person. It's all just my own blocks. I was listening to Annie Duke is a professional gambler and she talks about quitting. 
before that, she was an academic, and now she's a speaker and an author. She talks about redefining the goal. And she was talking about people quitting climbing Mount Everest out of safety, because if you don't summit by a certain time, you're going to die coming down. Somebody pointed out the goal is not to get to the top. The goal is to get back down alive. Yeah. So in dating or not dating, what is the goal? The goal for Monica and Jess was to just put yourself out there. It was not find your life partner. That's like a huge goal. I mean, that is a larger goal for me, but it wasn't in that show. That show was about, yeah, force yourself to be a little bit uncomfortable because this isn't comfortable. Mm. It's not going to be comfortable. Unless you start getting used to that feeling, you're never going to achieve the larger goal of meeting your buddy, you know, your life partner. So quitting this stasis, basically, this kind of comfort of just being like, yeah. And again, because I have so many excuses. I have a gajillion excuses. I work a ton. I have a ton of friends. Mm -hmm. I have a very full, happy life. It's easy for me to be like, I don't need that. And sometimes I believe it. I can really convince myself of it. Mm -hmm. But then I have real moments of clarity where I'm like, no, (laughs) I want that. And I want intimacy in that way. But I'm not going to get there without putting myself out more. And being uncomfortable. What do you like on a date, Monica? (laughs) I think like this. When I I went on a date, (laughs) I went on a date with this one really nice guy. And I mean, within like 20 minutes, I was telling him how I had a seizure and I peed the bed. Well, I actually did not tell him I had a seizure, but I was like, I had this weird thing happen where I peed the bed. Actually, he was like, I think you had a seizure. Oh, I was re- like, wait a second. He was a doctor or something? No. <laughs> he had a seizure. And he was like, I don't mean to scare you, but that sounds like you had a seizure. And I was like, really? And then the next week... I had a seizure. Wait a minute. Yeah, this is a crazy, crazy story. But I had a seizure in the middle of the night by myself. So I didn't know. I woke up and I just felt bizarre. I felt really disoriented. My back hurt so much. Mm. And I peed in the bed. Right. No drinking. So I couldn't blame it on that. I was like, what happened? Then I went to the doctor the next day you know, did a urine test to make sure my kidneys were fine because of the back thing. And they were like, yeah, it looks fine. We don't know. Whatever. Here's a steroid shot for your back pain. Bye. And then a year later, and I kept saying, I was like, that's not right. Something is not right. And then I talked about it on the podcast. A lot of people were like, saying horrible stuff like it's probably a spinal tumor like oh god you know, crazy things oh. yeah and that's the last thing i need because i'm such a hypochondriac and so one a year whatever and then i had this date and he said like huh that kind of seems like maybe it was a seizure and i was like whoa maybe and then literally a week later i went out of town with some girlfriends we went to vienna actually And I had a seizure in the hotel and the girls were there. So they saw. So then it was known that it was that. And he was right. Wow. So dating really makes you uncomfortable. (laughs) Like so uncomfortable that you'd rather talk about peeing the bed. Exactly. And you have no problem saying that. I had no problem. I announced that I bought a dog and that was my retirement gift and I was quitting dating. I know. That was my way of saying I'll never spend a night away from my home. Your declaration. (laughs) My declaration. But... I, too, have found that in dating, I will lead with, like, a strong right hook as far as, like, this is it. This is me. What do you think? I am definitely not doing that consciously. I think really what it is is I have a very hard time 
with small talk. I'd find it maddening. I really don't enjoy that. So I'm just going to kind of go deep pretty quick. But it's not like, okay, let me tell you a story about peeing the bed. It was organic in the way we got there. But I guess I didn't police myself. I mean, maybe I said like, this is probably TMI. But I'm not going to not say it because what else are we going to talk about? The weather? I mean, I don't know. This is what's going on. (laughs) I just, that's just me. By the way, he sounds kind of great. What happened? He was great. He was lovely. But then COVID and, you know, we did some Zooms and then, you know, kind of just faded out. What kind of questions do you ask? I hate the idea of question and question and job interviewee. I kind of just want to chat like we're chatting, you know, like I just want to know how do they communicate? Are they interesting? Do they like to talk? It might be time to push past the comfort zone or get a dog. I've thought about it. (laughs) I did think about it, but can I be honest? And everyone's going to hate me, but I don't like animals. All animals. All of them. I mean, mainly cats and dogs. Everyone hates people who don't like dogs, but I'm in the coffee line and there's too many dogs there and they are (laughs) rowdy. And I'm like, hello, I'm a person. I don't want to have to listen to this at 8 a.m. and feel like I might get bit. Do you think you have like a singular superpower or thing that this is the Monica secret sauce? Gosh, I hate that this is the answer, but it's that I assimilate. (laughs) What? Wait, what? Oh my God. Who knew we'd end up there? And you want to quit it? Listen, the positive side of it, the positive side of it is the secret power, is making people feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. I do think there is something approachable about me. And I think that has to do with this lifetime of deciding I'm going to be likable and be approachable and be what you need. So, yeah. But what does that cost you? I see right now, she's in this cream sweatshirt in a very sort of neutral toned, tasteful background and just fresh, natural, pretty Monica. I've also seen smoke show Monica. And do you have to put smoke show away to make people feel you're more approachable? Oh, my God. I mean... I don't believe there's a smoke show, Monica, so this gets hard. If you can't accept full smoke show, that there's a continuum from you woke up hungover with sweaters in your mouth to you're feeling your very best and you've got the banging outfit or whatever. So on that continuum, do you feel that you have to sacrifice something to stay approachable and, as you said, assimilated? Mm, No. No. I am not comfortable dolled up. I don't think it's a sacrifice because I don't want to do that. I feel so uncomfortable doing that. I feel like I'm putting myself out there so much. Because like when we had Monica and Jess, we had the millionaire matchmaker on. Mm Mm-hmm. And we had challenges at the end of each episode. And hers for me was to wear something, in her words, slutty. Oh. (laughs) I don't feel comfortable there at all. And even if people are looking, I just like don't like it. So how did you feel about when you were a Jaguar on Jimmy Kimmel? Who chose that outfit and how did you feel? Nicole Chavez, stylist, incredible stylist, chose it. Well, we had options, so we all chose it. And I felt great because to me, that's what I'm saying. It's long sleeve, it's high neck, but it's tight and it's a little flashy. 
But to me, it's not overtly sexy, you know? It's not revealing. Exactly. Yeah. It's not revealing. It's dope, though. It was really fire. Thank you. Thank you. I loved it, too. I felt so good in it. One of the other options, which I did love, was this white suit. But the shirt quote part was basically a tight, revealing, kind of midriffy thing. And it was hot. I loved it. But I was like, I'm going to feel self-conscious in this I know it. And I think they're both sexy, but one felt a little more overtly sexy and I chose the less revealing one. It feels like such an important part of the decorum of this industry is for people to be likable and for people to want to be around them. You're both like producer and talent, but for the talent side of what you do, for people to want to be around you, a big part of being likable is being attractive, it seems. And people also really will remark on your appearance. Mm -hmm. So it seems like you found a way to reconcile all of that. That's never been my value, mm. my face. That's never what I've led with. I've always had to lead with personality. I entered this in comedy, so it's a little different. It's not like I'm supposed to be this or that. I was at UCB. The best people were the smartest people, the cleverest people, the funniest people. So I know that the physical appearance has never been and will not be my calling card here. And that bummed me out for a long time. But now it's like, great. Now I don't have to try to do that. Now I can just rely on the things that are me. Maybe it's harder for people who grown up in the industry being called beautiful. I mean, Julie, I'm sure you have a lot of opinions on this. I find it very stressful as a female. A lot of your value is wrapped up in that. And I entered this industry as an actress. So there's this thing to lose, your youth and your looks. And granted, times were different because now anybody with an iPhone or a microphone or access to the internet, all things that didn't exist when I was coming up as an actor, we control the means of production now and we can be content creators and you can sort of map your course but as an actor coming up in the 90s, early 90s, you were asking permission all the time, permission to audition, permission to walk in that room. You were told how to dress and what to wear. And I remember running out before auditions, buying a dress that I didn't have or could afford because they were like, you have to be wearing a brown dress. I'm like, who have it? Yeah. <laughs> so I signed up for a business at the time that was more narrowly focused. Granted, there were always comedians doing comedy stuff, but I never saw myself that way. So I love the way that you entered it. I think that you're particularly smoke showy, but it is true. You've never done anything professionally that has relied on that. So I'm envious. You've assured yourself this longevity. Well, I had to. Right, but you made it work for you. But I also know what it's like to wake up and look incredibly pale and pasty and greasy and have no one pay me any mind or see me. And then what it's like to be red carpet, Julie, and have people take your picture and tell you you're beautiful. And those two things feel very far away from one another. And very inauthentic to be that person on the red carpet. We all have a strange relationship to this beauty industry thing. And it infuriates me because as I say this, I'm looking at Chad, who's like... <laughs> also perfect looking. I know. Beyond. And I there's know. like not wearing makeup because he's... A you think everyone is so pretty, Julie. Oh, no, no. 
I sure don't. (laughs) (laughs) Johnny, like, knows his angles and is adorable and sexy in an appropriate way. He's got a fiancé and the only person that's hotter than him. So it's all good. It's just, it's still infuriating because this is a conversation that I don't feel like you're marginalized from Chad. Marginalized! That's the word! (laughs) Finally. It only took us an hour and a half to get it. You did it! Oh, man. Oh, wow. Well, you're not marginalized from this because you don't have to suffer the same expectations as women do. Yeah. So we are in our last moment here. And Monica, I just wanted to ask if there's anything that you wish you could quit going forward. Well, I do want to quit getting in my own way with dating. I'm my worst critic of myself, so I just shut down a lot there. And I think I want to quit that. We should keep a scoreboard, Chad, of the things people want to quit. Yeah, we should. Because they almost all always come back to something about fear Mm. and judgment. Yeah. That's the thing under the thing. A hundred percent. It's fear and judgment because nobody else is stopping you. And I really appreciate you being so honest and open and warm. And you are a smoke show. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, guys. This was so fun. Thank you, Monica. 